Our Father in heaven, we thank you and bless thy name for allowing us to be present here this afternoon. We give thee all praise, glory, and thanksgiving. And may Jesus Christ be blessed as we open the word of God and we consult uh, the scripture for wisdom. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there is a great deal of information I'd like to cover this afternoon. I say a great deal. I, I, have, I, have, I have a lot more information than I could possibly share between now and time for us to depart. But what we've got is uh, material that I've been looking at for the last year or so. Um, off and on over the years, I've been studying the Noah's Flood and different aspects of it. So I've got a, I've got a collection of books. It's a, it's a fascinating area. Uh, tonight, or excuse me, this afternoon, we'll be looking really at an aspect of the geology of Noah's Flood. Um, there are a number of different aspects of the flood that need to be considered, and uh, geology is one of them. It is also one in which there's been uh, quite a bit of fresh research that's been done by several different uh, Christian men who have really worked bravely to try to defend the text of Scripture. And they have really had to fight uphill yes. against their own profession in order to publish and to write. Yeah. But uh, I believe a lot of their research is, is pretty good and it's really worth considering. So I'll share with you this afternoon some of my ideas and some of what I think are, I hope are useful insights. And we'll, we'll start from there, we'll go from there. I've got a number of handouts and I, I don't know if I'll get through everything I'd like to discuss this afternoon, but we'll, we'll give it a go. All right, before I give you any handouts, though, I'd like to open, have you open up your Bible to, uh, to Genesis chapter 6. I think it'd be useful for us to make sure we have our minds settled in, in Scripture, because we want to begin with Scripture and allow Scripture to be our, our, our trump card of information. All right? There's a lot of information out there about this topic and other topics. Scripture trumps all other information and data. So we presume that Scripture is giving us perfect information. And then we work in other pieces of knowledge, data, and research into Scripture. Not the other way around. So that's my premise. And so let's begin by, we don't have time to read all of Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 and even other portions of the Bible, but let's read a few sections of chapters 6 and 7. Why don't we start in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 6. We'll start there. Now the official title of this lesson is, Noah's Flood, the Fossil Record. And God willing, we'll get to that after a little while. But we're not starting with that yet, so uh, let's get started. Let's read Genesis 6, beginning at verse 14 down to the end of the chapter. Tell you what, let's read this responsibly and we'll kind of in a relaxed manner. Genesis 6, beginning at verse 14. Responsibly, make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit thou shalt finish it above. 
And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, behold I, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come in unto the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee, every living thing of all flesh. Two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shalt come into thee to keep them alive. And to thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. All right, so that gives us a sense of where, how this, the story begins with the instructions given to Noah. Now let's move into chapter 7 and read another portion. And this is the action. This is the action of the flood that is now being described. So let's start at verse number 11 of chapter 7, and we'll read on down to verse 24 in the same manner. So now we're in Genesis 7, beginning at verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. The rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased, and bare up the ark, and was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed, and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered." Cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died, and every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things, and the fowl of heaven and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. All right, thank you very much. Now, uh, there may come uh, to your mind questions that you'd like to pose if you'd like to hold them to the end, and then I'll do my best to answer your questions. Now, it's my premise that the flood was a worldwide flood. It was a global flood. I am not an advocate of the local flood. I believe that's a, a theory that is uh, perhaps popular among those who believe in Israel, but I believe it is, uh, it, it, it is, it is false, it is incorrect. And while I'm not e 
you know, setting out to disfellowship someone who, who is a local flood believer, I certainly believe that, um, that, that, that you're better off in your understanding of scripture and theology and all the implications that flow from it uh, to, to adhere to a global flood. Now I believe that uh, there are many other places we could look in scripture and when we do look at some of the other passages in scripture we, we've, we find that when the flood is referenced elsewhere the language lends itself better to a global flood concept. If you read in Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9, the language lends itself, I believe, better. If you, in Isaiah 54, it mentions Noah's flood. Again, that's in verse 9 and 10. And a great place is 2 Peter chapter 3, and you read the whole chapter, and it discusses the, the, the second coming and the end times and judgment and so forth. It really doesn't make a great deal of sense in com when you think about the second coming and the judgment of the second coming being compared to the great judgment of Noah, and you say, well, okay, Noah's was local, but the second coming is surely global, you know, worldwide. And so you run into all kinds of a little uncomfortable places when you look at the rest of Scripture. But on this point, I'd like to call your attention to a few verses here as we just kind of batter back and forth a little bit on this business about global versus local before we move into the geology. Um, one of the, one of the uh, arguments in, in, in favor of a local flood that is frequently raised is they, they land on the word earth. And so, for example, if we look in uh, um, Genesis 6, uh, a couple of different places, um, you'll see the word earth in the text that we've read. Okay? And they say, hey, look, the word earth means, is, is the Hebrew word eretz, or something like that. <laughs> anyway, it means... Uh, the soil, the land, the earth, it means firm. It's talking about that which we're walking upon. And, it, and, there are, and then they'll say, look, there's many places in Scripture where it is translated, and obviously it's talking about a, a country or a region. And an example of that is, the, is, is one, of the plagues. Uh, the plagues in, one of the plagues in Exodus 10 talks about the, uh, the, the, the face of the earth is covered with these you know, lice or whatever it was. And so, uh, hey, and they'll say, hey, look, it's, the word earth means the country, the land, the region. Uh, well, there's no question that that particular Hebrew word can mean that. But it also can mean the entire earth. Okay? So it's, it's, it's not, so, and for, for example, on that particular point, I should give you a quick example. If we turn to Genesis chapter 1, the first verse of the Bible <clears throat> tells us God created the heaven and the earth. Obviously, that's the whole world. And that is the same Hebrew word, uh, Eretz, that's strong 776. In Genesis 1, verse 11, and this is true throughout the early chapters of, the Genesis, of Genesis, really, God said, let the earth bring forth grass. There it is again, 776. So it's, it's the, in that case, obviously, it's the whole world. So we have to set the word earth aside, okay, and just say, okay, if we're just going to camp on that word, is that word enough to tell us if this is a regional flood, a countrywide flood, some kind of, uh, or is it a worldwide global flood? Well, that word earth is not enough information Amen. to actually answer that question. We've got to set that all aside. And uh, so let's just put that aside. Okay, we'll just set that aside. Let's look at the other elements that we can look at to give us clues. 
And we have to look at the clues that are given contextually within the, the text itself. So <clears throat> let's look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 17. Genesis 6, verse 17 gives us a real good clue here, a real strong clue in my view. So it says, and we already read this, Behold, I'm going to bring a flood of waters upon the earth. There's that word earth. But we're not going to stop at earth. <laughs> and then it says to destroy all flesh. Yeah. All flesh. Hmm, okay. Then it says, clarifying all flesh, all flesh wherein is the breath of life. Yeah. All flesh that has the breath of life. And then to clarify that further, from under heaven. All flesh that has the breath of life, that means it breathes from under heaven. In this case, heaven being the sky, the atmosphere above us. Well, how much of the earth is under heaven? Of course, it's the, entire, the entire world is. So that's a pretty strong argument, in my, in my view, that the text of Scripture is describing a global concept. And we find it repeated, something similar down there, verse 19, Genesis 6, 19, and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every short sort thou shalt bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be, <clears throat> may, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, 719. Sorry, sorry, 719. It's chapter 7, verse 19. Let me read that. It says, The waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And then it says, All the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. So all the hills under heaven were covered. Finally, we have in um, verse 22, All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land. And verse 23, every living substance was destroyed which is upon the face of the ground. Man, cattle, creeping things, fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. Now pay attention. And Noah only remained alive. And they, they were with him in the ark. Now there's a large number of practical considerations that we could really dive off into. You know, was the ark big enough to hold all the animals? Did what about all the food? And we could talk about the high hills. And we could go into where could such a local flood be? And when it covers all the hills, does that really mean all the hills? Um, uh, you know, and so there's a, there's a lot of details. We could spend just an enormous amount of time analyzing this from a practical, pragmatic, <coughs> logical flow of direction, you know, and, and that's okay. But I want to return to my an earlier point. We want to let Scripture trump all other arguments. Amen. Okay, Scripture trumps all other lines of thinking. And when Scripture paints this picture for us, um, that, that's, I think that's where we have to, to land upon. And it turns out, when you go down all these sundry different directions and track out these different questions about how did you get all the animals on the ark? And how did this happen? And how did this happen? And how did this happen? Actually, what things that appear to be problems with a global flood aren't nearly as problematic when you sit down and really go through it point by point in an analytical way. All right, so there's that. Uh, another, one consideration, though, that I, you hear frequently that I think we should mention is this. All creatures of every kind were on the ark. That is to say, I believe it was a global flood. Quite literally, everything that was, every breathing creature that wasn't on the ark died. And that you say, well, immediately people say, well, okay, well, what about the other races? Well, they were on the ark. What about Cain's descendants? Well, they were on the ark. Everything was on the ark, everything. And in fact, that's what the language tells us. 
And if we, again, just looking at the, at the language, in Genesis 6, 19, it says, Of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee, and they shall be male and female. Some people kind of react and they say, well, wait a minute, I thought God just said to bring, just, just bring the animals on the ark. Well, the word animal doesn't appear in the text. Does the word animal appear in the text? It does not appear in the text. It says, it may appear in other translations. I don't know about that. Probably there's a translation out there that has, who knows what other translations say. We don't need to get go down that road. We can find a translation that, that says whatever you want, probably. It says, every living thing of all flesh. <laughs> and it clarifies that in other places, all flesh that, that, has, in, that has the breath of life. And in Genesis 7, 15, it essentially repeats that. Genesis 7.15, they went in unto Noah, into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. All right, so that means that every living creature of every kind was on the ark. Now that's a big, that's a problem, I guess, but it's not too big a problem for God. He, you know, God is, is a big God. And so, uh, anyway, without going into the dimensions of the ark and how we're going to get all the animals and all the creatures and all the living creatures and so forth and so on on the ark, let's just take it by faith that when God says, all flesh that, ha- where, that has the breath of life is brought onto the ark, let's just leave it at that. Uh, now, occasionally people say, well, wait a minute. I thought the point of the flood was to kill off all the Canaanites and the fallen angels and the mixed race this and the mixed, you know, all the, all the demon. You know, we've got to destroy all the seed of Cain and so forth. Even the Cain, even, even people from the race of Cain were on the ark? Yeah, the answer is yes. There's a part of me that says, well, I thought the flood was going to, supposed to, to get rid of all that. Well, not quite. As a parallel, you might consider this. Jesus chose 12 disciples, but he said one of them is the devil. Yep. <laughs> All right? He chose 12, and he intentionally chose one. Scripture says was the devil. That's, that's the language there. And so he had his purposes in doing so. And similarly, God has his purposes in bringing some, uh, two, I presume, of the seed of Cain on the ark. All right. Now, um, one final thing, and I don't want to go down this road too far either. One thing you constantly hear (laughs) about people who object to a global flood, because the global flood concept fits very well with a young earth. I am a young earth creationist. I literally believe in in an earth that is about 6,000 years old. Literally, 6,000 years old. Give or take a little bit. Fine. Let's not fuss with over 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, whatever. I'm a young earth person. The global flood fits very well with a young earth theory. Now, there's an awful lot of people who just out of hand reject that idea and say, obviously, the earth is millions or billions of years old. It's got to be way, way, way older. The young earth premise in the Western world was the only premise out there really in the Christian West until the late 1700s. There were not a, there's not a single early church father who believed the world was millions of years old. There was not a single Protestant reformer who believed the world was millions of years old. 
It wasn't until the late 1700s, the very late 1700s, that you began to see a few theologians begin to waffle under the pressure of a evolutionary worldview that was emerging in the late 1700s with a couple of different Lamarck and a few other gentlemen. And then it became, then it really split wide open, of course, with Darwin in the mid 1800s. And that's when the collapse really came among theologians who just caved in and said, well, I guess, you know, it really isn't 6,000 years old, and the genealogies that are given in Scripture really can't be counted on. There's, there's got to be another way of approaching it. And then theologians began to develop alternate theories, the gap theory or just uh, the day-year theory, and all kinds of theories to accommodate yes. evolutionary thinking. But that evolutionary thinking wasn't there until about the late 17, early 1800s. It just simply wasn't there. And um, the, so going along with this, people say, well, look, yeah, but we didn't really know much about geology until the 1800s, late 1800s, 1900s. Well, that's total balderdash. I mean, yes, there's more known about geology now than there was then. Um, but there was a pretty substantial a field of knowledge among geologists in, 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 or before the 1800s when Hutton and other guys came along and said, oh, the rocks tell us that the world is millions of years old. We've got to have all this deep time. And then people invariably bring up, well, golly, carbon dating, carbon-14 dating, and radiometric dating proves that the Earth is millions and billions of year old, year old and you are just a Stone Age numbskull, Mr. Benson, <laughs> because you insist on a young Earth. Okay, let me explain something to you. Or let me give you my perspective, shall we say. Probably most people in this room are willing to concede at this moment in time that there are many, 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 many climate scientists who are dishonest. Raise your hand if you think there are lots of well-funded climate scientists who are dishonest. We now know that that's true. Okay, the robe is, the, the, the blinders are off. Okay, the curtain has been exposed. Climate science is rigged. All right? We now know that at some level, at the level of the CDC, medical science at least to some degree, we now know is rigged. All right? Is it so hard to think that maybe some other sciences have been rigged? I'll tell you, they are rigged. And there's two that pertain to our study that are worth mentioning. And Tamara, I kind of went through this with you a couple of days ago. But just consider this. So, <clears throat> until about 30 years ago, you would just find that whenever the geologists, you know, there's two types of geologists. Let me, let me sidetrack. There's, there's, there's the university geologists who are the ivory tower guys who, who don't go beyond their laboratories and they write the textbooks and they do the lecturing and the teaching and they interact and they get the government grants and they do this and they do that and they do this and they do that. And then you've got the field geologists who I would call more like real geologists. And now the real geologists in my opinion, are far better than the ivory tower guys. It's not to say the ivory tower guys are all complete liars, although probably a lot of them are. Um, but the field geologists 
know more about the earth than the ivory tower guys who, who everything is abstract in their head and on paper. But the field geologists, take for example the oil industry, if you're a field geologist and you work for, you know, Texaco or whatever, and they say, we, your job is to tell us where to punch a hole in the ground. So you study the land and the rocks, and you, you have, so you say, okay, we're going to drill here. And if they spend half a million dollars drilling a deep hole, and it, there's nothing down there, they're going to say to you, you screwed up. You do that many times, you're fired. You've got to be right. The field geologists, they know what the earth really looks like. And so some of the best geologists, and I enjoy geology. I've been off and on dabbling in geology for many years. The best geologists out there are the field geologists that, that actually work in the field and have to, they have to get it right. And some of the best minds now that are working in the area of this area of, of, of creation science and are working in this area of demonstrating the earth is young are the retired field geologists who know what they're doing and are now free of professional pressure. Amen. You see, they have to wait until they're about 60 and can retire. Yeah. They're now free of professional pressure that says, don't publish this. Yeah. Now what happens in, in our time in the area of geology is that is, is all the government grants are going to people, geologists, who are there to produce to produce a study that will give the results that are desired. And this is the same thing that happens in archaeology now. And most of these geologists, and in another area, archaeology, you know, digging in for pottery and such in the soil, but these fields are not stuffed with people who, have, who are completely objective and open-minded. They're primarily stuffed with the same type of people we find in climate science. People who have no regard whatsoever for the Bible, don't want anything to do with the Bible, don't want anything to do with God, and if they produce a s seven studies, one of which confirms their premise that the earth is millions of years old, and the other six of which say, well, maybe it's a lot younger, guess which one they go with and which one they publish? The one that they're after. Guess which one gets the funding? The one they're after. Okay, so that's the way the system works. And in the area of archaeology, there's always professional competition. And in the case of archaeologists, here's what they do. Archaeologists are always looking to one-up each other to say, I found something that's older. So one archaeologist says, well, I found something that's, um, you know, I found a piece of pottery that's 4,000 years old. And over there, from another dig across the way, half a mile away, in another same ancient city, you've got another archaeologist from a different university, and he's like, doggone it, that guy's got the oldest piece of pottery. <laughs> oh, lo and behold, a year or two later, I found one that's older. Yeah. This one's 4,500 years old. I, oh, here's another guy. I've got one older yet. And so what's happening is the archaeologists, their dating mechanisms, are, their dating is just getting older and older and older. And so they're way past 6,000 years now. They're 12, 20, 25,000, and they're digging up, you know, finding an old log, dugout log, and this, this, this. So I got to tell you about carbon-14 dating. Back to that. Carbon-14 dating was the gold standard up until about 1960. And they used carbon-14 dating to prove the Earth is millions of years old. 
Well, people began to look at carbon-14 dating a little more closely. They began to realize that there are certain premises built into the system that rig the outcome. I am glossing it over, summarizing and glossing over it. So you don't find carbon-14 dating used anymore among geologists because they now, it's now been proven that carbon-14 dating is only good back for about three or 4,000 years. After that, the results are totally bogus. That has more or less been conceded. So in the absence of carbon-14 dating, to prove the Earth is millions of years old, the, the, the professional world that hates God and hates the Bible, and, 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 and they're all thinking, golly, what are we going to do now? Now we can't. Well, we've got to come up with another dating mechanism. So they have actually developed other dating mechanisms. And the dating mechanisms usually are called radiometric dating or radiocarbon dating. Um, the most common one is potassium argon. But then there's rubidium, strontium, and a whole bunch of others. But all these radioactive decay dating mechanisms that they use now were specifically designed, in my opinion, to prove the outcome that they wanted. They were designed. It's as if I said, you know, you're a smart physicist. You know a lot about geology, and you know a lot about a lot of stuff. I need a system that will prove that the Earth is 10 million years old. I need you to prove that this rock is 10 million years old. Now, I'm going to give you a million bucks to go out and study something and give me the result I want. And he says, I can do that. I can do that. So he comes back. He gives me the result I want. That's the way funding works nowadays, and that's the way, that's why, um, that's why we have the problems we do in climate science, that's why we have the problems we do in the medical field, and it's why we have had for the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years the problems we have in the area of professional geology and archaeology, and most of, many of these professional institutions that are, that are from the get-go, geared against all concepts of God. So anything that smacks of God or divinity or the Bible, man, that is absolutely off the table. And if you go that direction, your career is over. That's the way it works. Now, I've kind of rambled about a bit. Let's go to uh, some other areas here. Let's get started. Um, let me give you a handout here. I want to kind of run through this real quick-like. Um, perhaps, Lynn, do you feel spry enough to hand that out? Someone, somebody here feels spry to hand this out? Here, over here, give everybody one. I, I think I need one for myself. <laughs> All right, what you're going to get here, which we'll kind of zoom through, is the biblical timeline of Noah's flood. A biblical timeline. I'd like to call your attention to the days that you see right there in front of you. You all have one. We got any more? We need one up here. Up here. All right, you'll notice that from based on Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, this is day one of the flood. Chronologically, this is year 600. The, that's, that's the year 600th of Noah's life. That's our reference point. The 600th year of Noah's life. Second month, 17th day of the month. It tells on that day the fountains of the great deep break open. It tells the windows of heaven were open and the rain begins. Day number 40. Noah's 
life, year 600 in Noah's life, third month, 27th day, tells us that the rain stops, and that's where the ark begins to float. Now, a lot of people just immediately assume that the ark started to float right away, and actually a close reading of Scripture indicates that it started to float on day number 40. Also, people just assume that the entire flood was 40 days long. Of course, it's far longer than 40 days. That's not correct at all. Then we have days 41 through 150, or about 150, approximately right there. So this takes us from the third month, 28th day, through the seventh month, the 17th day. We find some of these facts. So the ark is drifting for about 110 days. The flood waters continue to rise. The depth of the waters is at least 15 cubits, okay, above the highest point of land, possibly greater. This is the period of time which we, we could call the killing period. All the land creatures die. Many, but not all marine creatures die. The waters prevailed exceedingly. That's a, it's a quotation from Scripture. And that's an important for phrase, so I had to pause right there. Many people have the wrong notion about Noah's flood. They imagine a gentle rain that just doesn't quite stop, and slowly the water just kind of slowly builds up like you're filling a swimming pool with a garden hose. And that's not the way it was at all. That's wrong. This was an exceptionally, exceptionally violent event. Exceptionally violent. The most violent, watery event that has occurred in the history of the earth. Far greater than anything you've ever read, heard about, or seen in a movie. Now, accompanying all this was a great deal of geological upheaval of the land under the waters that made the waters violent. Now this is an element that has been studied a lot recently by several of the geologists I've described. And I'll just throw this out here. Uh, this is a book that I picked up, oh, I don't know, six, maybe nine months ago. It's called Carved in Stone, put out by mm, Institute of Creation Research, published relatively recently, I believe 2020. 2020. All right, it's a, it's a pretty big book. It's almost 500 pages. It's not exceedingly technical, but it's not exceedingly lay, so it's kind of a halfway in between for, for a person. You have to really like geology to read it, but, but I do, and I enjoyed it. Essentially, what the author does here, and he's not the only one, he's pointing out that there's, a, that there's an awful lot of information that is now known about the earth itself, the strata of the rocks, about the earth itself that tell us about the history of the earth, and the history of the earth is not, it is not an old earth that is millions of years old, and it is not a tranquil earth. It is an earth that went through a brief period of exceptional geological violence that is unbelievably, unbelievably violent, hard for our minds to, to, to imagine and really, to really wrap our brain around what was happening on the earth at that time. So <clears throat> we're going to come back to that point. But continuing on here. <clears throat> um, so the waters finally start to calm. And the ark runs aground, but no land is seen. Then finally, day 223, we finally, land is spotted. Day 313, the land begins to look dry and the covering of the ark is removed. And finally on day 370, 
601st year of Noah's life, second month, 27th day, the land is actually dry enough to begin unloading the ark. All right, now, don't worry about the back right now. We'll come, come to that later. I've got something else for you. <clears throat> One of the things I need to describe now is a little bit about the geology. Um, now, in this particular handout, you're going to see two sides. On the back, I'll just pause real quickly and we'll have a quick look at the back of this. Just for your edification, I've got there a, a photograph of the Grand Canyon that I've copied off. It's, it's okay. But many of us have seen the Grand Canyon, and so you know that there's many layers of rocks that are present that can be seen, strata. And then above that, there is a cross section of the Grand Canyon and the various layers. And these layers have been studied. They've been given names. They've been analyzed and, and really looked at very closely. And it turns out that, that there, are, there are patterns that can be seen in places on the earth like unto the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon is not the only place where you see this sort of thing. There's a number of other places around the, around the world. It's just one of the most evident ones and one of the easiest places you can see and one of the most famous places you can see this sort of thing. Now, if you turn it over, <clears throat> I want you to look at what is called, on the other side, what is known as ideal mega sequences. <laughs> now, if you probably don't know what that means. I'm going to give you a, a very brief explanation. It turns out that there's, <clears throat> there are three types of rocks in the earth. There are sedimentary rocks, there are igneous rocks, and there are metamorphic rocks. Igneous rocks are volcanic-type rocks. They're the ones that obviously have come up from a, some sort of a volcano, and they have a particular look to them that is easy to perceive that this is volcanic, and that's the way it is. So there's basalt and a couple of other types of volcanic rocks that, that people are familiar with, obsidian and so forth. There's metamorphic, which is kind of rare, not exceedingly rare, but that's rock that has been transformed by some sort of geologic process that has kind of altered the material under a lot of heat and stress. The most common type, though, is sedimentary. And some of the sedimentary rocks are types that you've heard of. Three most common are right here for you. They are sandstone. You probably noticed you know, what sandstone looks like. There's limestone, that's very common around the earth, and there's something called shale. Now it turns out there's a lot of sandstone, limestone, shale around the world, all over the place. These are probably the three most common types of rock. By no means not the only kind, but among the most common. So the first question to be asked, well, why is that? Now sedimentary rock is called sedimentary because it forms from sediment. And sediment is from water. Now, there's another pattern that is found around the world that the oil geologists were the ones who pointed this out about 40 years ago and have been writing and publishing about more recently. And that is the, there's a pattern with these three very common sedimentary rocks. And the pattern is you'll see sandstone at the bottom, shale above that, and limestone above that. And then it, then it repeats another layer of sandstone, 
another layer of shale and another layer of limestone. This is quite common. So each of these patterns is called a, they call that a megasequence. Megasequence. And it turns out there are six megasequences on the Earth. And the reason that it's always sandstone, shale, and limestone is pretty easy to perceive if you think about sediment. You don't have to think about it very long to understand this isn't extremely complicated. Sandstone is made up of sand that's settled. Sand is large particles. Shale is made up of clay and silt that is settled. And limestone is made out of particles and particulates that are even smaller yet. And so when, you, when this sediment forms, if you took material, if you took a, a glass jug, fill it with water, and dump handfuls of dirt in there, and then shake it all up and set it there and come back, say, 24 hours later, you're going to see sand at the bottom, shale forming in the middle, and then a thin layer of limestone-like material that forms at the top. It's going to be the last to settle. That takes a little longer, actually, than probably one day. But so this is a pattern that clearly comes from water and is clearly repeated, and it's, uh, there's, there's probably a lot of meaning in that if we know how to interpret that and can put it in the right context. All right, so you just keep that thought in your head for a little bit, this ideal mega-sequences. And then let's go to, um, flip this over. We're going to have to talk about this before too long. This is another thing. This, you may recognize seeing this in some textbook at some point in your life, called the geologic column. The geologic column is, 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 a, is a vertical record of fossils that are found in various rock layers. Now, this particular diagram is what you might call an idealized geologic column. All right. In fact, I kind of hand wrote in on the side, I wrote idealized geologic column. Now, you'll also note, because this is just a copied out of a, an old textbook, there's dates on there. So we can, I want you to ignore those dates completely. As I've already told you, the date, dating mechanisms are complete fiction. Now, in both geology and archaeology, you have what is called relative dating and absolute dating. Relative dating is easy. Absolute dating is hard. Absolute dating is giving the year in which this object is, how old this thing is, this object. Relative dating is easy, though. Relative dating is based on the, what they call the principal superposition. That simply means the stuff at the bottom is older than the stuff at the top. And that's a pretty much a no-brainer. As you dig down, the stuff at the bottom is older. Okay. So there's, there's no mystery about it. This, in respect to relative dating, the geologic column really has some value. Even though it actually doesn't exist in exactly this form, this is an idealized version, there is some value to it in terms of relative dating. It is valueless, in my opinion, in terms of absolute dating. By the way, all these dating mechanisms, if you follow it over the last, since 1950, find yourself an old science textbook from 1950 and one from, say, 2015. The earth is just getting older and older and older and older. <laughs> Everything's just getting older and older. See, no, millions of years isn't long enough anymore. Now you've got to go for billions. And it just keeps getting older. 
anyway, I could talk about that for a long time. Um, let me give you your third and final handout, and we'll really get now to the heart of our study, and I'll try to move through it you know, in a way that's not too slow and pokey. Here you go. Now, I prepared this particular worksheet for a Wednesday night study several months ago that we gave here locally. I didn't do all this work just for you folks today, although I might have. I could have. I might have been willing. All right, so let's, let's get started. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work through this, uh, this, uh, this worksheet, and if you care to fill in the blanks, that'd be great. If you don't want to, that's your business. So we're going to kind of focus in on the fossil record and what this means and we're going to come back here in a little while to this business of the mega sequences that I introduced to you the other, a little while ago. All right, just a few quick basics about fossils. <clears throat> what is a fossil? All right, fossils are simply the remains of creature that were buried at or immediately after death, such that ordinary decomposition was not possible. All right, the hard parts of the body mineralize, and they're afraid of fossils. Next question, are, are there still fossils forming today? And the answer basically is no. With very rare exceptions, there are no fossils forming today. If a raccoon falls over in the woods and dies, he will not fossilize. The, best, the most likely thing that's going to happen is he's going to be eaten by some other creature probably within a couple of days. He'll be gone. The only way he would fossilize is if he happens to, at the moment of death, fall into a situation where he sudden, somehow gets rapidly buried under many, many feet of earth. Then he may fossilize. Of course, that happens very, very rarely. So it's only uh, under the most rare conditions today that fossils even form. Under what conditions did fossils form? Now, the evolutionary world's a little reluctant to admit this, but they're basically compelled to. Basically, floods of water. Floods of water are essentially the only normal circumstances in which fossils are going to form. That's the only mechanism by which living creatures are going to be buried immediately or at death. They're going to be buried at death. Essentially, they're buried alive. That is the way fossils are formed. They are buried alive under a lot of muck, many feet of muck. Two or three feet's not enough. The worms will get them. Six feet's probably not enough. You need 30 feet, 40 feet. You need a lot of muck. Okay? Got to get down there where there's no oxygen, where there's no decomposers. Now, are there a lot of fossils out there? Well, of course, the answer is yes. There's billions. There's just vast quantities of fossils, and then there are a great variety. All right? So that obviously leads us to the next question. How do the fossils form? And the evolutionists, now here's their answer. All right? Uh, the evolutionists go through a, they jump through a lot of hoops to try to explain how fossils can form without any worldwide flood that reminds them of Noah's flood, because they don't want that. Anything that sounds remotely like Noah's flood, that's off the table. Anything that says, oh, that sounds a little bit like a global catastrophe, a little bit like Noah's flood, can't be that. 
So they go jump through a lot of hoops and they have various local event here and another local event there and a local, 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 all these moments. So to get this all to happen, they have to have time. Lots and lots and lots of time. Without time, what, you, what they sometimes call deep time, time that is so much time that it is meaningless to our brains when we hear it, their whole theory falls apart. And we don't, we don't even need to talk about evolution. We're just talking really about, about fossils right now. So we're not even talking about time that requires for evolution and mutations and all that, all that malarkey. Just the time for fossils to form. They have to have lots and lots of time. And after a while, it becomes mind-numbing. So, you know, if you're okay with 20 million years, you're probably okay with 520 million years. Because both amounts of time in your brain is just, you know, it's a, me it's a huge, meaningless number of years, isn't it? Right. Well, evolutionists take advantage of that by just throwing more years in all the time. And so the Earth just keeps, in their theories, the Earth just keeps getting older and older and older and older. <laughs> all right. And if there's a problem, their answer is always add more time. That's their solution to every problem that is raised. Well, we just need more time. Let's get another 200 million years in there. That'll work. That'll solve the problem. That's an explanation. So the evolutionists claim, though, about fossils, they, they claim that the fossil record shows that simple life forms are in the deeper rock strata, while complex life forms are in the shallow rock strata. That is, up at the top, you've got complicated creatures like man and horses and cows and elephants. And then go down deeper, 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 you get to other creatures that are less complicated, like a, I don't know, a, a frog or whatever. And then you go deeper, 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 now you get down to little bitty simple, what they call simple creatures, like like a slug or something, and so forth and so on. <clears throat> so they love that because this approach, <clears throat> from their point of view, this shows that life evolved from simple to complex. Simple at the bottom, complex at the top, right? And they'll say, this proves evolution. <laughs> you know, life started with a couple simple cells that become saying some sort of little creepy crawly slug which became some sort of amphibian which eventually after millions of years and billions of years became a, a bird which became a raccoon or whatever it is and eventually worked its way up to more complex creatures like you know apes and man and so forth and so on. Alright, let's go to reality. The reality about the fossil record in the rocks it's much more confusing than just saying simple at the bottom and complex at the top. Now, the simple at the bottom and complex at the top sounded pretty good back in 1880 and 1890 and 1910, back when we had a pretty primitive understanding of cells and how cells worked. Now we know that a snail might look simple compared to a horse. 
But it actually isn't any simpler. It's not a simpler creature. It's a lot smaller, but it doesn't function. It, 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 the biology of that little slug crawling across the floor that you step on is exceptionally complicated. All right? And even a single-celled animal, a little bacterium, has this little flagella or whatever, those are exceptionally complicated. They are far, 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 far more complicated than evolutionists believed 100 years ago. And so the, the, the premise upon which this has been developed, this geological column with simple at the bottom and complex at the top, is, is false. Because the creatures at the bottom, they're smaller, but they're not less complicated. They're just smaller. <laughs> Now, the pattern now that they, you do see, though, is, is called the geologic column. So, a better way to describe it, though, that I think is accurate and is fair, is to describe it in this shorthand description. Essentially, what you've got is you have small marine animals at the bottom. You have reptiles and dinosaurs in the middle, and you have mammals at the top. All right? Small marine creatures at the bottom, amphibians and reptiles in the middle, including dinosaurs, and mammals at the top. Now that's a shorthand, but it has nothing to do with simple and complex. It has, it has to do with something else altogether. Now, let's go to Noah's global flood. So I believe that Noah's global flood is an excellent explanation of how the fossil record was formed. And its flood does more to properly explain the geologic column than evolutionists can. So what's going on? All right, first one. I need to pause on this first one. Noah's 370-day global flood was really a six-phase event of extraordinary geologic and watery violence. Essentially, it was like six floods in one. You say, six floods in one? What do you mean? It had six phases. Six, six elements. You've got an entire year that's going on that this watery event occurs. An entire year. And there are different phases to it. And each phase produces, as it turns out, its own mega-sequence. Which is why there are six mega-sequences. The first mega-sequence is at the bottom. The second mega-sequence is on top of that the third on top of that, all the way to the top. Six mega-sequences. And you say, well, who figured out any of this stuff out that you're talking about? Well, it was geologists. In fact, it was oil geologists who are drilling at great depths. Some of the greatest depths that they've been drilling at are, uh, among some of the greatest depths, are down um, in the Gulf of Mexico and other places like that where they're drilling and not just, they're drilling thousands and thousands and thousands of feet trying to get down to oil. Now, they, the deeper you go, the more harder it gets and the more complicated and the technology of keeping the, the pipe going straight and all sorts and the heat involved. There's all kinds of complexities. But as they punch these holes, and there are literally hundreds of thousands of wells that have been drilled in the last century, maybe more than that, but every well has been mapped. When they punch a hole in the ground and they drill through the various strata, they're keeping track of what they're drilling through. All right? And then they take that information, and all this data has been assembled. And so oil geologists have this immense amount of knowledge 
about what's under the ground that nobody else knows about. <laughs> what they've done is they've come up, they've developed this information, and, it, and you can get, and, and this, these databases now are becoming available, uh, and, and what you've got are these mega sequences that are very much like this. Now, this is, this is simplified, bear in mind, this is a simplified, but, but, but nonetheless, this is, is, this is not a dishonest way to, to, to express the reality of what's under the ground. So it turns out you've got these six mega sequences in which you have sandstone, sandstone, shale, and limestone. All right, let's continue before you get too bored. All righty, point B. They are very deep. They're, they're, they do their very best. And it does get complicated. The, the technical problems they have to overcome are rather impressive. At any rate, each phase now produced a repeated pattern laying down sediments that later lithified into rock. Sandstone, shale, limestone. So each phase of Noah's flood laid down a layer, laid down one mega sequence. The first mega sequence was sandstone, then shale, then limestone. The next phase of Noah's flood repeated it. And the third phase repeated it. And the fourth phase repeated it until you get all the way to the top with the six mega sequences. Now, so repeated six times, these are known today as the six mega sequences. Each mega sequence has been given a name and contains certain types of fossils. Now, the names we'll get to here in a minute. The names were given by these various geologists, and they used, uh, it turns out many of the names are Indian words, but they were, they're basically places where they first ran into it. And so that's why they came up with these names. So the names, have, they're not biblical names, they're not scientific names, they're just names. <laughs> right. Finally, point E. Now the last point on the first page is a very important one. If you walk away this afternoon and you say, I can only remember one thing that he said all afternoon. If you remember this, you're going to be a leg up on a lot of people. The geologic column is not a record of evolution. It is a record of death, a vertical cemetery. It's a vertical cemetery. It's a record of death. Now, if you look at this sheet again, let's look at it with the eyes that this is a record of death. This is a vertical cemetery. It's telling us the order of death in Noah's flood. It has nothing to do whatsoever with the development of life over millions or billions of years. It has nothing to do with evolutionary concepts. It's a record of death. And it's telling us at the bottom, these were the first creatures that were buried under the muck. Then you move up a little, the next batch of creatures that were buried in the muck. And you move up a little more, the next batch that were buried in the deep mud and muck. And finally you get to the top and you finally get to the mammals and man. Alrighty, now Let's go to the back page of your handout. What I'm going to try to describe here is, is a little bit about 
what the flood would have been like, as I would understand it. Noah's flood and these six mega sequences. So on the left, you find those six odd looking words. <laughs> those are the names of the mega sequences. And they have to do uh, with where these oil geologists first ran across this particular type of sequence of rock. All right, so, and so that's the, the, the first and lowest mega sequence. This is the lowest now, the first one is called Sock. Now, this represents the first 40 days of the flood. And they call this the deep sea floor subduction phase. Now, I need to pause real quick and tell you a little bit about uh, an aspect of Noah's flood that I believe there's a lot of research being done that shows that this is an aspect of Noah's flood that hasn't been really considered uh, all that recently. So, in, in terms of, of the theological research that's been going into Noah's flood, it has several phases of its history. If you go back prior to, say, the year 1750, all the thinkers of the Western world just read the Bible and said, oh, Noah's flood was a global flood. And there was a few geologists like Steno from Denmark and a few other guys who gave it some real deep thought. But most people, uh, they, they, there wasn't much work going on deep in the earth. No one was drilling for oil. The coal mines were relatively shallow. So there wasn't an awful lot of, of, of uh, need to understand this in greater depth. Then you move into the 17 and the 1800s, into the 1900s, and essentially all of the evolutionary thinkers got a great leg up in terms of how to look at the earth. And so um, there, there, there really wasn't, and, and, and all the theologians in the 18 and 1900s were quick to just jump on board with this evolutionary old earth view. And that's when the theologians began to come back to the Bible and say, well, you know, what about the day uh, age theory and what about the gap theory and all these different ways we could kind of twist scripture just a little bit to make it fit a, a world that's millions of years old. Then, it wasn't until about the 1950s, it wasn't until about the 1950s you began to have some theologians began to say, Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe the earth isn't millions and billions of year old. Let's, let's go back to scripture. Let's start, see if we can defend a plain reading of scripture and a clear understanding of scripture with a young earth theory and look at Noah's flood and look at creation and look at these things and see if we can find something that's a better explanation. So it's only been in the last 40 or 50 years that you've had very many people trying to accommodate, shall we say, scientific knowledge with biblical knowledge and allowing biblical knowledge, let's assume that this is accurate, all right, instead of assuming that it's wrong, let's assume that it's right and see how we can dovetail the two together. So <clears throat> there's been a lot of research done in the last 50 years, not enough, but a lot, and the first phase of this really focused on issues involving the water. And one of them was, and one of the, that was developed, I believe, in the 1970s that really began, got a lot of attention was the water canopy theory, which is the idea that there's a, there's a water canopy above the earth. And that's where the water came from primarily. Now, that goes a long way to explaining a lot of things. Um, it doesn't explain everything, though. And one of the things it doesn't tell us anything about is this issues of geology. It doesn't tell us anything about geology. It doesn't explain to us how the Grand Canyon formed. 
when the evolutionists tell us that the Grand Canyon took 500 million years to form, but God's Word says we've only got 6,000 years. How could the Grand Canyon have formed in 6,000 years? Well, I believe the answer is Noah's global flood. Well, how did that happen? And what's going on? And the, so the next phase, which has been, been worked on for about the last 20 years, <clears throat> there's been a couple of pretty good books published in this area that are dealing with a whole area known as uh, plate tectonics. Now, plate tectonics is a, is a body of science that's, that is, I believe is valid and is dealing with what's happening on the continents and in the oceans and dealing with the, 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 the vast, gigantic uh, hunks of rock underneath our feet and how they move and slide past each other. And this and the plate tectonics now is, goes a long way to explaining why earthquakes occur here but never here. And why volcanoes are common here, but there's never any volcanoes popping up over here, and things of this nature. So, there's, in, in light of that, that brings in some of these guys, some of these geologists who are familiar not only with the strata that's been revealed in their oil field work, but they're familiar with plate tectonics. And they're beginning to marry these things together. And one of the things that we can see in Scripture, that's, it's mentioned briefly, but there's a lot of people who think it's, it's, a, it's a major feature of Noah's flood that explains what happened during the flood and explains how the earth could end up looking the way it does now after Noah's flood. It's based on a lot of this research dealing with plate tectonics. And that is where we get this business when we say the first 40 days of the flood was called the deep floor subduction phase in which tremendous tidal waves churn the oceans. What was going on is that these plates were beginning to move in ways that they had never moved before. Now, I'm inclined, I can't prove, I don't know if anyone can prove quite, but I'm inclined to believe that prior to Noah's flood there was only one continent, one great continent. And in that respect, even that's one of those very few things I guess a lot of evolutionists would agree on too. It's just that as a young earth creationist, I think that that one continent was there at the beginning 6,000 years ago. They need, you know, 600 million or 800 or 1.2 billion or whatever. It's, the number's always getting bigger. But plate tectonics explains how the one continent has become seven continents. All right, so we're on the sock now. This first period, the first approximate 40 days of the flood, known as the deep sea floor subduction phase, what we see is tremendous tidal waves begin to churn the oceans. And it was during this period that we have the small marine fossils that are forming. Now those small marine fossils mean little marine creatures that basically live on the bottom of the sea that can't get out of the way of bad stuff happening at the bottom of the sea. Crabs and other little creepy crawlies, they can't just swim away like a swordfish can <laughs> to say, I'm getting out of this area, all this murky stuff going on down here, and so they just get buried. All right. The first phase of the flood, according to this line of thinking, in those first 40 days, there was a great deal of rain. But the rain was mostly running off, 
And not a lot was happening, believe it or not, not a lot was happening on the continents just yet. Okay, it was getting ready to, but not yet. That takes us to the second phase. The first phase was primarily in the ocean basin, this vast ocean basin around the single giant continent. Then we go to what is known as the Tippecanoe, the second mega sequence. The second mega sequence, also during this first 40 days, it was beginning to creep up on the land a bit now. The shallow seas subduction phase. More and larger tidal waves begin, are beginning to produce vast oceanic muck. And the shallow seas were beginning to be swamped and become, uh, and beginning to sink. They were beginning to sink. They were beginning to, you were beginning to see a, signs of continental sinking. Larger marine fossils now are beginning to form. Ocean creatures that previously could escape can't escape this now. They're running out of places to go in the ocean. Then we go to what's known as Kaskaskia. The end of the first 40 days of the flood, by now the ark is definitely floating. And you move into the coastline flood phase. Now in terms of the days of the flood, this, these are approximations, of course. You, you understand we're just approximating. This can be called the coastline flood phase, in which muddy tidal waves are beginning to flood and erode the coastline areas. Now this is where humans are beginning to get worried. Now they were a little bit worried already because they could see what was happening out in the oceans and this wasn't normal. This was far from normal. But right now, they're okay. Your coast, until this point, there's a lot of flooding, a lot of water. This is pretty unpleasant, pretty bad. And we'd never seen anything like this before, but not many people were dying yet. Alrighty, so the muddy tidal waves begin to flood the coastline areas and most fossils are marine, but some slow-moving land creatures are being buried in the massive muddy waves that pound the coastlines. Now here's one of the central thoughts that, that I think is worth considering. It wasn't a case of so much as only water rising, but it was that the continents were sinking. Okay, So imagine the, continent, the land you're on is is going down <laughs> as there's as all this this these this tectonic activity is producing all of this violence in the oceans it's beginning to swamp the land now that you are standing on and there's been plenty of water that's fallen from the skies but that's that's not the end of your trouble the rain has stopped but that's not the end of your trouble now we move to absaroka uh, this is, they're estimating from day 41 to about day 100. The continental inundation phase. All right, so this is where you're beginning to see a lot of death. Plains, fields, forest lands are flooded. Monstrous muddy waves inundate most land regions. Mammals that can move rapidly retreat to high ground. Humans fight to occupy high hills. Dinosaurs and reptiles cannot easily escape, and they're buried forming fossils. So animals that are not fleet of foot, animals that are not particularly intelligent, are being buried in massive numbers. There's a lot of interesting little tidbits that have been observed. Um, 
one regarding fossils they found in, I believe it's in the state of Montana, there's a vast number of a particular type of dinosaur. It's, it's one of these little, it's, it, it's not a big T-Rex, but it's one of these little, these two-legged kind, they're a little smaller, I can't remember what they call them. They, what is it? Coelophysis. Coelophysis, you, you, where there's, there's a vast number of them that were all buried at once. Thousands and thousands of them. They're all adults. They do know that they take several years to grow, but there's no little ones with them. The adults ran away from the young or outran the, the young in fear and were eventually something caught up to them. And by the thousands, as they hoarded themselves together in terror, they were buried. What would cause thousands and thousands of only adult <laughs> only adult dinosaurs of this particular type. What'd you call them? I forgot. Coelophysis. Thank you. What would cause them to all cluster together and die at the same time? Now, remember, evolutionists believe that this all happened really slow and it was only just natural processes. You can remember that I haven't talked about uniformitarianism, that, that simple principle, but evolutionists claim the fossils are forming slowly from natural processes that are rather ordinary. Well, that's, no, that's not ordinary. And, and there's quite a few examples that are very much like that in terms of these fossil fields where you find that they're clustering together. Of this, a lot of the same types of creatures are clustering together, and then they're all dying together. And there's other elements of this. Uh, in terms of geology, how many know what the Canadian Shield is? Dan, tell them what the Canadian Shield is briefly. I'll, or I'll, maybe I should, well, you make it quick, and I'll repeat it for the people who are listening to this on CD. Most of Canada, that's right. It's most evident though in the western part, the continent sort of sticks out. It's a layer of uh, well, one of these layers, just like uh, you know, essentially the Canadian Shield, if I may. May I, may I jump in? The Canadian Shield is a vast chunk of Canada in which it's it's the rock is there's all rock and there's hardly any soil. There's hardly any soil. The topsoil is literally this this thick. For th hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, you have topsoil that there's almost no topsoil. It's rock. But yet, if you go not far away, you run down, say, like um, a couple, you know, you get to a point where the Canadian Shield suddenly stops, and now you've got, say, in Minnesota, which is not terribly far away from the Canadian Shield, suddenly you've got 80 feet of topsoil. Why is there in southern Minnesota, 80 feet of black topsoil. And a few hundred miles away, north in Canada, there's three inches or two inches or almost none. Well, these guys that put this together say, pretty, actually pretty simple. What's happening was, in the, well, I'm really kind of getting ahead of myself, is it's this business about the land dropping and rising and the water flowing off. We haven't gotten there yet. I really am getting ahead of myself. Let's go, let's move on though. Uh, back on the Absaroka, we have uh, um, reptiles can't escape. They're buried forming fossils. Dinosaurs now are dying in vast numbers. Humans fight to occupy high hills. 
and in some respects it's kind of a question of intelligence. The more intelligent creatures are the ones that are surviving longer. And the fleet-footed ones. And then we get to Zuni, day 100 to about day 150. Absolute death phase. So the highest water levels are reached, land masses have sunk, and the high hills disappear. Unimaginable chaos and violence unfolds as titanic muddy waves reach ever higher and people and animals compete for the few remaining hilltops. Humans are the last life form to survive. Finally, all drown, swept away by the dark muddy waves. And finally, we get to the Tejas. This is the receding phase. Now, the receding phase is unique and different than all of the others. This is quite important. The receding phase is where we have the, we finally get to the end. <laughs> the oceanic subduction and the earthquake stop. The tidal waves stop. The water begins, the sediment settles out for the last time. You have the formation of the last mega sequence, the top mega sequence. The land masses, though, steadily continue to sink in some areas and rise in others, causing water to flow, of course, downhill. <laughs> the Canadian shield forms. The topsoil was once there, is washed away and settles in lower areas. And at that moment in time, one of the lower areas was southern Minnesota, where the topsoil is many, many feet thick. But more dramatically, the water flowing downhill in very fresh deposits, remember all of these mega sequences are fresh deposits. All six of them are fresh deposits. They're soft. They're relatively soft. The ones at the bottom are a little firmer, but they're all relatively soft. So this carves massive canyons in some areas, like the Grand Canyon, and deposits sediments and soils that are thousands of feet thick in other places, like the Plains states. So if you go out here to western Kansas, you can tell, you can perceive if you use your imagination, at least I think I can in my imagination, <laughs> how the rise of the Rocky Mountains created sediments washing off the Rocky Mountains that eventually that in, in literally in a matter of days washed hundreds and hundreds of miles out into the western plains. And they're still there today. Gravel beds that are hundreds of feet thick are found in different parts of western Kansas, western Oklahoma, and places like that. And uh, various uh, signs of mass, mass erosion where they finally came to rest in the Great Plains. When they started where the Rockies are, as the Rockies rose, the water washed a lot of sediment, a great deal of sediment off. Other locations are stripped completely of their sediment and today have almost no soil above the bedrock. That's the Canadian Shield. Finally, we get down to the end. Day 224 through day 370 is the tranquil period. The land settles, the land dries, plant life sprouts, and we can move on from there. Alrighty, so... That essentially takes us to the end of our, our study. So, 
Um, I hope this has been of some value to you. To kind of wrap up what we've talked about, though, uh, the fossil record here, this geologic column, it is not a record that proves evolution. It's a vertical cemetery. It's a vertical graveyard. That is a, a thought that I think is of great value worth, worth your consideration. All right. I believe I've gotten through all the material I was thinking about presenting, and I hope it was somewhat coherent.